This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you're enjoying this podcast in Manawatu, you could make your very own, just like this one. NPR exists to help people like you tell your story or share your passion on air and online. Check out npr.nz for more information. Hi, I'm Greg Watson and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters. Lovely having your company and this week we've got a real mixed bag of news from uh, around around the country and, and various different topics including uh, commercial property, rental properties and residential sales and so forth. Lots of stuff to cover. Normally I'd give you a bit of an idea of what's there but uh, what happened was on the way walking into the studio out on the street I managed to drop my notes, uh, which went flying absolutely everywhere. So just one of those days, and (laughs) we might be heading around mixing it up a bit today. So first of all, uh, I found this article and stuff that I thought I might share with you. And this is called Ask a Mortgage Broker, How Expensive Is It to Be a Low Deposit Buyer? So Jeff McLeod, a director of Edge Mortgages, is answering this question. That somebody sent in. So they said, how much extra will we have to pay in low equity fees and higher interest rates if we buy with a 15% deposit or is it worth holding until we have saved 20% before we try to buy? And there are a number of factors that you need to take into account when deciding whether or not to purchase with the lower deposit or wait until you've reached your 20% target. One of these factors is the housing market that you're in at the time. And if house prices continue to go up as quickly as they have been over the last few years, then it may be in your best interest to purchase with a lower deposit. That's because when you're dealing with rising house prices, you're also dealing with a continual adjustment of what your 20% deposit looks like. In saying that, the current climate is showing a reduction of house prices, so you don't really need to take that particular factor into account if purchasing in today's market. Then it comes down to the lender's policy around their low equity fees or lower equity margins. As you can imagine, each lender has its own way of calculating either a low equity fee or a low equity margin. So you need to understand the difference between the two before trying to save to get that 20% deposit. So what are they and what do they do? There's a low equity fee and it's based on the value of the loan's loan times a percentage based on your home to value ratio. Uh, If this one is easier seen um, written down, then you just go to stuff.co.nz and look up uh, a low deposit buyer. But let's say your loan was $500,000 and your loan to value ratio is 80%, or in the 80 to 85% range, the fee would be 0.25 or $1,250. But if your loan to value ratio was 85 to 89, that would be a higher 0.75 and the fee would be $3,750. So it's a one-off payment paid at the beginning of the loan, but you can pay that outright or add it to the loan. And of course, if you add it to loan, you'll be charged interest on that fee over the lifetime of the loan, making it much more expensive in the long run. The low equity margin, in the case of low equity margin, is based on a similar calculation, but instead of being a fee added at the start of your loan, it becomes an interest rate percentage added to the rate you're given. For example, if the loan was $500,000 and your loan to value ratio is in that 80 to 85 mark, the margin would be 0.25 to 0.35 depending on the lender. So it's just added on to the interest rate. 
For example, if the interest rate given to you is 6.49 for one year, then the 0.25 is added to it. That makes your interest rate 6.74, which is approximately an extra $1,250 per year. Likewise, if you're at uh, above 85%, the LVR low equity margin would be 0.75, so it would be 7.25 added on. So just something to be aware of. There are some options there, and uh, those fees can make a difference. Good to get some good advice from a a mortgage broker about how that may work. So it is possible, remember, to lend uh, on those lower equities, putting less money in. Um, as to whether it's better to, to wait, uh, if a market's rising quickly, then um, that can be justified. Uh, where it's not, it's probably a reasonably expensive exercise. So I was reading uh, an article just the other day about where the rents have increased the most in the last year. If you own a rental property or, or if you're a tenant, the last couple of years have seen some really large changes in rental amounts and here in uh, Manawatu Wanganui we've seen some really quite significant changes and uh, and those those have been uh, 7.3% and 5.8% in the last couple of years so that's what what does that mean in dollar terms it means that it's up $45 one year and $40 the next bringing the median prices up to uh, two years ago, five fifteen, and now five fifty. So that's at eighty-five dollars worth of changes on the median rent in two years. So if uh, if you're a landlord and you've been worried about all these extra costs and so forth with regards to doing your business of uh, rental property, um, eighty-five dollars is the median in which things have gone up. So therefore, if you uh, are not Keep in line with that, you're falling behind the market and then it has a double whammy of the increased costs as well. Uh, if you're a tenant and your rents haven't gone up, I'd suggest you just uh, uh, be as nice as possible to the landlord, as good as possible to the property, and hopefully they'll just keep those rents where they are. But statistically, um, you know, things really have moved um, significantly in terms of prices. Interestingly, though, in the last year, the biggest supply jump in the country was in Manawatu, Wanganui, where the rental listings went up by 35%. So I'm not quite sure what that's related to, whether it's related somehow to COVID or less international visitors uh, compared um, or something like that. Hard to say. We'll move on now to a little bit around commercial property. Uh, as residential properties, as the price rises and for investors, the returns are not quite where they would like. Historically, um, there can be an increase in investing in commercial property, which really can have uh, quite a good rate of return. However, high inflation and rising interest rates are some headwinds uh, in the commercial property market. But strong demand for quality office and industrial space remains. And this is according to an article uh, by Miriam Bell on stuff.co.nz. Bailey's National Director of Industrial and Logistics, Scott Campbell, said the ongoing challenge for the industrial sector was a lack of supply category-wide and for sale and lease. There was a softening of values over the course of the last year, but that flattened out now and the values are expected not to soften any further due to the cost of replacement, he said. Likewise, we expect vacancy rates to soften too as new developments catch up and come on stream. And it sort of does depend where you live a bit as well. This seems to be like national comments. But office property was in strong demand last year 
as companies return to the office, but with the hybrid flexibility built in. Bailey's Executive Director of Auckland Commercial Real Estate, Lloyd Budd, said, As the market resets, and while occupiers try to accurately forecast their footprint requirements, sublease opportunities have appeared, offering options to a broad range of businesses. So companies changing the way that their workers work, changing where they work, and so forth. But there was an ongoing flight to quality space with efficient floor plates, flexibility and intuitive fit-outs that reflected modern ways of working and what to do with secondary-grade vacant buildings was a challenge, he said. We expect ongoing interest from landlords and tenants for co-working or shared space to allow shrink and grow flexibility and more focus on green builds. That's just sort of some general trends that are happening there. And there's some new industrial developments coming on stream this year, particularly in Auckland and Christchurch. So not so much... Uh, around these parts, but it's interesting just to know uh, know about those changes. Uh, speaking of changes, of course the market has been changing and the there's an example here to do with residential property. It says the price of downtown Auckland apartments slashed to $89,000. This is on Stuff Business um, in the property section. So the apartment that earned the title of Auckland's cheapest in November is now even cheaper, with an asking price going from 149000 to just 89000 And there's pictures of it here. The fully finished apartment is located on White Street in Auckland's city centre. The one-bedroom, one-bathroom space is more or less 38 square metres. I once lived in a 30-square-metre apartment in Sweden. I can tell you uh, it's not that big. But uh, in saying that, doesn't mean you can't be comfortable. So it sports a generous north-facing balcony and key card access points for extra security. It was described as an apartment for owner-occupiers or as a rental investment in a trade-me listing. And uh, while the $89,000 is very low, it's no longer the cheapest one listed on trade-me. That belongs to another small apartment in the city centre, which has an asking price of 88000 so while they're selling, sound incredibly cheap, it's worth investigating what other costs are involved um, to do with the likes of the body corporate um, sort of costs that you might get. It's interesting that the one at 88000 is a one-bedroom, one-bathroom property, um, and it's really a studio. The total size isn't listing, but listed, but the living area is 3.2 metres by 3.84 metres. That's... 3.2 large paces by 3.8. <laughs> so, wow, it's a different world compared to here in Manawatu. Um, you know, that more or less virtually describes uh, a, a relatively small bedroom <laughs> in this part of the this part of the world. I'm just leaping through my papers. Like I say, I did drop them <laughs> on the way in, and so they're a little out of order. So I've just found this one, which is, uh, don't expect the LVR relaxation to cushion house prices, according to CoreLogic. So again, this loan-to-value ratio, how big a deposit or how much equity you need. CoreLogic Head of Research, Nick Goodall, says the best guess is that future debt-to-income ratios, which is not quite the same as the LVR, but debt-to-income ratios restrictions for home buyers will restrict lending to 6 times a borrower's income. Investors and property owners should not expect any relaxation of loan-to-value ratio restrictions to cushion house prices this year, CoreLogic says, and that's really the point of it. And that's a real shame if that's what does happen because it's hard for, um, for many buyers to, to get into the market or to, or to continue to purchase. 
in fact, uh, we're still seeing in, in this area and probably around other parts of the country that uh, there's still the majority of people buying by a long, long way are those who are just bu- buying to upsize or to downsize. They've already got properties. First home buyers, they're returning to the market a bit. Uh, there will always be first home buyers, of course, as um, life's changes come along, but it's not really a marked change. Uh, investors, they're still sort of largely holding off as well. So that's why there seems to be, uh, in one or two, a bit of an oversupply. But if you've still got a nice home for sale and it's uh, rented sort of reasonably in line with what the market's doing, then then no trouble selling. Um, salespeople I know say they'll still get quite a number of people going, provided that it's not uh, overpriced. So the I was hoping... Uh, or I've been saying to people that if there's a change of government potentially or if, or if the new – or any government actually, sorry, the, uh, even if it stays the same, if they look at um, removing the LVR, that's going to spark the real estate market again um, because really the restrictions were put in place back in March 2021 – and uh, and that tightened to try and then tightened later to try and stop the frenzy and coop any threat to financial stability that the overheated property market represented. So, uh, just a reminder: the current LVR levels mean investors mostly require a forty percent deposit, while owner occupiers generally need a twenty percent deposit, even though new builds are exempt. So we'll just see how things go there, uh, depending on your situation uh, as to how that might affect you. The other thing that's interesting that we've been talking about in the media recently is um, inflation and quite where that's going. The falling inflation overseas is sort of boosting some hopes that price rises may also be near a peak and the heat could start to come off interest rates later this year. Kiwi Bank Chief Economist Jared Kerr said the latest inflation figures from the United States were playing out just as hoped. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics reported late last week that the annual inflation in the U.S. has subsided to 6.5% in December, down from a 40-year high of 9.1% in June. The Reserve Bank here tipped in November that annual inflation would climb from 7.2% to reach 7.5% in the December and March quarters. Its November forecast also implied that the official cash rate, which is currently 4.25, would climb to about 5.5 by June. It stay at that level for about a year. But Kerr believes that inflation is close to its peak, if it had not already peaked, and that Reserve Bank will be cutting interest rates before the year is out. So we have to see how that goes. A little bit of better news on the horizons, particularly if you're on a floating mortgage where you've been seeing those going up and up and up again. Uh, or if you're uh, coming off a fixed term and refixing higher, um, watch, us, watch the space if you're due later in the year to see if um, some of those rates do come down a bit. Moving on now, the one thing I brought, I think it was in last week's show, is a discussion about being careful about properties that you buy with unconsented work. So I just want to, to re sort of go back to that really because it's pretty important. And there's this really good article, if you're in the market buying, by Miriam Bell on stuff, lo, stuff.co.nz lifestyle in the real estate section. So, and it says, the risky business of properties with unconsented work, can they be a bargain? So... They give this article, and this is a quote from a recent post in a first home buyer's Facebook group. 
which said, so I've been to five open homes a day with all five houses. The agent informed me they had unconsented work. Is this normal? And this shocked post generated numerous responses which indicate that listings featuring unconsented work are not unusual. And experts confirm this is the case and that buyers need to be aware of the risks. It's hard to pin down the figures on this. With searches of residential properties with unconsented work run earlier this week, generating nine listings on Trade Me Property and just four on realestate.co.nz. But Nick Gentle, the co-owner of iFind Property, a nationwide buyer's agency for investors, has been involved in many property transactions, both buying and selling with unconsented work, and he says it's far more common than people think. And uh, I can also attest to that, working in the real estate industry for quite a number of years, that it is something that you might uh, come across. Nick Gentle says that unconsented work he has encountered ranges from dodgy en-suites to bedroom conversions to wall changes to piling issues. One property he helped sell had a carport added in the 1980s but not signed off, which was later turned into a bedroom without consent. Oh my goodness. Oh dear. It was unconsented work on unconsented work, he says, but we looked at fixing it but it was too close to the boundary so there was a high chance that the council would say it had to be removed and returned to the original state. So you get all these situations where people have adjusted things and the council's none the wiser. Um, And the reason that it's a risk, because if you buy that property, that could affect your insurance. If you're a landlord and you rent out an area thinking that it's allowed to be rented out, and technically it's not, you can be made, as was uh, recently the case, and I think I mentioned in last week's show or show before, that someone rented something that wasn't consented out and they had to pay a considerable amount back. Technically, within the law, if you rent out a property and, and uh, it's consent, unconsented or part of it's unconsented, uh, that tenancy can be made to be null and void and the landlord will have to return all of the rent. Now that's the worst case scenario, but recent cases show that owners have had to return um, certainly part of the rent. I remember I've made a mistake like that in the past. I rented out a house. We believed it was uh, all consented, we were told by the owner that it was consented as a, a sleep out um, and on that one um, and actually um, it was not so we'd rented it at a certain price and we had to um, actually uh, recompensate the tenant uh, and at a the difference between that and the lower price So for buyers uh, as I was mentioning it's an issue for insurers they just don't like the risk if it impacts on your insurance, it will impact on the lending you're able to get on the property. So depending on the nature of what has been done, it can actually present quite big problems. So if a buyer does not want to purchase a property with unconsented work, sorry, let me say that again. If a buyer does want to purchase a property with unconsented work and has a plan to fix it, it's possible to get Project Works insurance, which cover, provides cover for six months while the issue is sorted, but the work has to be done. And all repairs need to bring the work up to current code, but the nature of the work does make a difference. So minor work can be fixed easily with fewer hassles. Properties listed with unconsented work can be a great opportunity for investors, Gentle says. He said they tend to scare away the owner-occupiers, particularly in a softer market such as this one, where buyers have more choice. Significant price reductions on such properties are attractive to some buyers, but Christina King from Duncan King Law says there are just too many risks with such purchases. A buyer might think they're getting a bargain, but taking on someone else's problems is never a bargain, she says. Insurance and lending can be affected. Your ability to refinance and to sell is affected. You might have a situation you can't fix, and the council might require you to take the work out. But nevertheless, sales transactions involving unconsented work are common, 
As it is rife in older houses in the past, many homeowners took a DIY approach to their properties and did not consider it the council's business. So how do you find out about this stuff? Well, properties for sale did not used to be investigated to the extent they are now. Uh, It goes well beyond a LIM report, or they do a residential property inquiry in this region. It is about looking at the property's files, original building plans and so forth. So a lot more is coming out and lawyers look at deals more closely. There is some silver lining though for buyers. If a buyer loves a house with unconsented work, it's possible to get the work up to code, signed off as safe and sanitary and get a certificate of acceptance from the council, although sometimes it's not feasible. So what buyers should not do is buy a house, don't disclose the issue to the lawyer who has to tell the bank or to the bank. That's a terrible way of getting on the issues because it will come back to bite at some point in the future. So generally, uh, lawyers will try and make it work, and uh, however, at, at the end of the day, they will also give advice on what the um, difficulties can be. If, and if you're thinking about real estate people, um, disclosure is actually the key in this area. The Real Estate Authority Chief Executive Belinda Moffat says agents must disclose to buyers any relevant issues or defects, including lack of consents with the property they are aware of. The agent has to give have the permission of the seller to disclose issues to buyers, but if the seller will not give permission, the industry's code of conduct requires the agent to walk away from the listing or to risk a complaint and disciplinary action, she says. Uh, Agents, of course, can't follow instructions by vendors where they would be breaking the law, Um, and part of that is uh, misleading uh, conduct, etc., through the Fair Trading Act or through... um, Oh, a couple of others as well. So when selling a property, honesty is always the best policy. Sellers need to share all relevant information with the agent and with prospective buyers, including unconsented building work. So a seller acting in good faith should really put themselves in the shoes of the buyer and think about what they would like to know if they were buying property. So buyers should get a limb report. Again, that's uh, you could get a residential property information inquiry here in the month or two. But... Uh, on the property they're interested in, and Moffat recommends buyers should also get a property inspection report from a qualified building inspector before committing to sale. All good advice. And what we saw when the market was really busy was that people were removing clauses from their offers to try and make them seem as attractive as possible where things uh, where they were competing against other people. And uh, I'm, I'm glad now that the market slowed a bit, you've got more of the option to not feel under so much pressure to waive clauses like building reports, uh, limb reports, and so forth. Another thing that's uh, been happening lately, of course, is that property prices have been coming down. Now, again, that's uh, partly through the situation that we have where a lot of buyers have been removed from the market, of course. So Trade Me property asking prices fall 6% in post-pandemic come down. Now, just to clarify that uh, heading, that's the asking prices fall, um, not necessarily the, the median uh, sales price. But people are, I guess, when they're selling their properties, are now realising, yes, we need to price them according to the market. So the sensational side of things says that national property prices took their biggest annual tumble in over five years at the end of last year and demand was down too, Trade Me says. Properties' latest price index showed the average asking price for a property was down 6% annually to 897900 in December, a 58000 decline on the same time in 2021. 
Trade Me Property Sales Director Gavin Lloyd said it was the second annual drop the site had recorded in a row, with the average asking price falling by 4% in November. So remember, we're talking about the asking price, not the selling price. I'm trying to bring you the sales prices uh, when I get the next uh, Real Estate Institute of New Zealand monthly report. It'll be just in a, in a couple of weeks' time. So where have these uh, – so these uh, largest – I'll move on to um, some of the figures that I've got in that space. <laughs> they don't quite necessarily uh, relate to us. I'll just have a quick flick. Yeah, they don't mention Manawatu Wanganui, although they do say within the article that prices were down in Palmer's North by 15.7% house price falls. Now, uh, that sounds pretty dramatic, but remember they had gone up uh, 30% year on year for a couple of years. So uh, it is a dramatic drop in the context of historical drops, but we've also had a whole lot of historical rises. I was talk, talking to a friend just recently on the weekend who was telling me that although their uh, marriage has split, they're keeping the homes. And this article here by Geraldine Can says, growing numbers of divorcing couples are putting off selling shared homes. And this is probably because of the uh, drop in the market. Um, it says that divorcing cu- couples are increasingly choosing to defer the sale of their shared home in the face of falling house prices and rising interest rates, mortgage advisor Bruce Patton says. Such arrangements made particular sense for couples who had bought in the last two years who, due to price falls, may lose their entire deposits if they sold at today's market value. So you could potentially walk away from 50000 or $100,000 that you put into it with the way the market's turned, he said. In some cases, what I've had is they've gone their separate ways, They've gone out to rent and they've kept the house to try and maximise return when the time is right to sell. Patton said both partners often come back to him during the divorce process and were often concerned about recent market turbulence. Prices also often remain too high for many to be able to get back in the ladder once the property was sold because the partners would then be on a single income. This is a, an issue where uh, if you once you're out of that property market it can be very difficult to get back in on one income as opposed to two. So you need to have a reasonably amicable relationship to be able to stay in the market, of course. Um, And he advises that having a legal agreement stipulating the conditions under which the shared house can be sold was pretty much key. So some arguments, oh, sorry, some agreements, I should say, stipulated that the shared home would be sold, but only during a defined period. One example he saw recently required the home not be sold in the first three years, but stipulated it would be sold within the next five However, if divorcing couples were not in a hurry, they could ride out the downturn. could take 10 years, could take three years, Patton said, so whether they have the patience to hold on. So that's something that uh, is unfortunate. Um, one of those things that happens in life, going from potentially two incomes to one and then getting your life back on track and back onto the financial side of things to be able to then purchase property so that the uh, the friends that I know um, are both going to be renting if they sell their house. And uh, then it's going to be hard to then start again at a certain age to get into another property. So if it's uh, amicable enough, there is uh, solid uh, financial reasons to um, keep hold of that property for a period of time and then sell it provided you've got um, something in writing which covers your bases and that's all we've got time for this week uh, on 
Property Matters, you've been listening to Greg Watson here on NPR Manawatu People's Radio, Te Reo Irirangi o Ngā Tangata o Manawatu. And you can find this uh, as a podcast as well if you want to just look up Greg Watson, Property Matters, wherever good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening and we'll catch up with you next week. If you enjoy this NPR podcast, please consider subscribing. Our podcasts are available on all major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify, as well as the accessmedia.nz app. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.